0: To save you time later in the call, please enter the primary cardholder's nine-digit social security number. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. <music> we'll be back after this message from our featured nonprofit.
1: The jobs up today in the future require digital, technical, and social-emotional fluency. Students are ill-prepared in these skills today because schools aren't equipped to keep up with the rapid innovations occurring in our economy. At Honor Code, we provide remote and in-person teacher trainings to schools and after-school organizations to bring employer-aligned computer science and social-emotional learning skills into the general K-12 classroom. Since our inception, we have worked with organizations including the Boys and Girls Club, purpose Built Communities, and Junior Achievement to train over 50 instructors who have trained over 3,000 students. For more information on how to bring Honor Code training to a school or after-school organization in your area, visit our website at www.honorcodeatl.org. Honor Code, helping our schools build the capacity for tomorrow's world.
0: Corporations have always tried to influence the culture. They've got money to spend and a big upside if they can change the way we think or act or behave. And for a really long time, the way corporations did this is they spent money on media, they spent money on products, but then they were done. It was the retailer who sold you something. If that thing you bought didn't work, you went back to the retailer to talk to them about it. There was a huge disconnect between the people who made it and the people who sold it. Of course, this wasn't true for the first 10,000 years of farming civilization. In all those days, you went to the baker, you went to the candle maker, you went to the butcher. You looked him or her right in the eye and did business with the person who made it. But once the industrial age showed up, that's when the dealer showed up, the retailer showed up, the disconnect. Growing up in the 70s, I never once picked up the phone and called a company's 800 number. That's because the 800 number hadn't been invented yet. The 800 number, invented by Roy Weber at AT AT&T in 1980, had two components. The first component, the obvious one, is that it was free. It was free to pick up the phone and call a company. Back in those days, telephone calls were expensive enough that people talked about when they were going to make a phone call. Everyone gathered around the phone to talk quickly because a long-distance call was expensive. 800 numbers solved that problem. But the other thing that 800 numbers did, which is much less commented on, is the fact that they could do it at scale. You never got a busy signal when you called an 800 number. So suddenly, here was this way, this efficient way, to say to a consumer, don't bother with the retailer, Call us directly. And there are three big reasons why they'd want to do that. The first one is to fix a short-term emergency. You're sitting there trying to install an oil filter in your car and it doesn't fit. You don't want to trek all the way back to the retailer because the retailer doesn't know how to fix it anyway. Here, call us. This is the essence of customer service. You are the customer. How can we serve you? How can we make you happier by having you call us? But the second thing that came along soon thereafter is to transform the experience completely. So think about Federal Express.
1: Welcome to FedEx.
0: Federal Express could not have been built without the 800 number. Because how else could you let Federal Express know that you had a package you wanted them to come pick up? There was no retailer. There was no efficient way to have a local office with one phone where you would call and say, it's ready. Federal Express figured out how to transform our culture at scale, shipping millions of packages every day, but they couldn't have done it without an 800 number. This led to the third reason that 800 numbers began to spread, which is that you could use them to build a competitive advantage. That if your competitors didn't have this direct connection with the people who used their product, and you did, you came out ahead for a few reasons. First of all, you got to keep all the profit that the retailer was used to keeping. Second, once someone was engaged with you in a direct conversation, it was likely that you would get more and more of their business, because it was easier to call you, do it one more time, than it was to shop around. So there was this profit gap this profit gap that many companies leaped over. And it was either about how do we structure our arrangement with people, so the idea that you could call American Airlines, you could call Delta instead of dealing with your travel agent, and two, that we could build ever deeper relationships with the people who want to buy from us. I still remember in the early 80s always picking up the phone to call one 800 M-A-C-L-I-S-A, every time I wanted to buy software. I probably ended up buying $50,000 or more dollars worth of stuff from a company in New Hampshire, a company that I never visited, but that knew a lot about me and that I was happy to engage with. Why was it called Mac Lisa? Because they sold Mac software, and the Lisa was an insider reference to people who knew that that was the machine that didn't really come out before the Mac. So I would call, and they would answer on one ring. They would know my name before I even started to speak, because the 800 number told them what number I was calling from. The success of businesses like this made it so that we could have the midnight salespeople, the infomercials, the folks buying commercials just to get me to call them to buy something, Now you can get every record ever recorded. Yes, in this one-time-only mixed bag special, every record ever recorded, from the same people who brought you hits of 51, 52, Hungarian love songs, songs that begin with the letter P, every possible combination. Every record ever recorded. We mean literally that. Every record ever recorded since recording began. We drive a truck to your house. It was a way to pay for itself as the culture was changed. Compare this to what happened when the Columbia Record Club in the early 60s was trying to figure out if they could run ads on television. Here's the problem. There's no way to call them to order the records you want. So how could you possibly afford to run ads on TV to reach the teenagers that you want to buy your 12 records for a penny? Well, Lester Wonderman, the father of direct marketing, came up with this clever idea. Columbia Record Club frequently ran ads in the parade magazine on Sundays. The ad would be a full page outlining all the records you could get, with a little coupon on the bottom, and you'd painstakingly write down the six-digit code number of each one of the records, put your name and address, tape a penny to it, and mail it to the Columbia Record Club. And then a month later, something would show up at your house. Antiquated, I know, but it was the state of the art. Well, what Lester did was he put a 13th box, a gold box, on that coupon. And then in the TV commercials, they went through the whole rant about why you should buy these records.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Clark. Have I
0: got music for you. 13 of your favorite records or tapes for one penny. Then the Columbia Record Club had a clear path. The ad would run, the announcer would pitch how great it was to get all these records for a penny. And then, in a whisper, he'd say, you know, in the Sunday paper, you're going to get that coupon? Look at the bottom for the gold box. Put the number of the records you want, an extra record, a free record, in the gold box, and then we'll send you a bonus. The result of this was that there was a way Columbia could measure whether the TV ads were working or not. Well, as you can guess, all of this hoopla of getting new customers began to spread. You may have heard of 1-800-A-B-C-D-E-F-G, Hooked on Phonics, a company built on their phone number. 1-800-Flowers, which isn't just a website, it used to be a phone number. They built a company that grew to millions and millions of dollars by encouraging people to call them on the phone. Or 1-800-MATTRESS, leave off the last S for savings, something that I've had trouble understanding for a long time, That's the precursor of Casper and all the other people who want to sell you a mattress online. Side effect number one, then, is that companies, small at first, they grew to become huge, trained consumers to believe that they could call a phone number and a human being would answer, listen to them, help them, do business with them, and that they could trust them enough to give them money. Side effect number two is this led to the internet? If it hadn't been for the 800 number, there would be no Amazon. Amazon takes advantage of the fact that people believe that if you click a button, you're going to have something show up at your house in a couple days. We learned that from 800 numbers. It also led to the creation of significant databases. If you call an 800 number, it's not like calling the local hardware store. At the local hardware store, they know me. They've been to my house. They know what I need. When I call an 800 number, that human has never spoken to me before. Without the database, it wouldn't work. But the database, now keyed into my phone number, brings up an enormous amount of information about me, and they use that information, at least at the beginning, to serve me better. Better than the local retailer could ever dream Of serving me. So what's the problem? The problem is that over time, most of the growth happened. FedEx got as big as FedEx was going to get. And suddenly, answering the phone on the first ring isn't a marketing feature. It's an operational expense. Suddenly, that idea that customer service is how we're going to grow this business becomes customer service is costing us too much the definition of customer service shifted. At the beginning, customer service was change the mindset of the person we're engaging with. Change them from untrusting to trusting. Change them from angry, my thing doesn't work, to delighted, thank you for fixing it. Zappos was built on this idea. Unlike other companies, Zappos rewards its employees for staying on the phone. I believe the record is seven or eight hours for one customer service call. It's a great night. It's up, this is Harmony. How can I assist you? Oh, I am so glad you answered the phone. Oh, my gosh. And we just went to a Taco Bell, and that's the address of it, and it's not open. They closed early, and it's 12... 14 and they usually close at 1 and they closed early tonight and I was craving Taco Bell and I've been wanting a bean burrito all day and it was closed and so it's not fair fair. and I was just so upset so I was like oh my gosh I'll call Zappos they're the best in customer service and they maybe could help me find out where there's a Taco Bell nearby that's open still absolutely okay so tell me the the name of the town again I'm sorry are you on the road right now There's the famous story of how a Zappos rep got a call from someone who said, My mom passed away, and in cleaning out her house, I found dozens and dozens of boxes of unopened Zappos shoes. I know it's past the deadline, but what should I do? And the Zappos rep was very kind and open and said that she would ship a big empty box to this person. and They could put all the shoes in the box and ship it back and Zappos would give her a refund. But the real point of the story was the next day at her mom's house before the funeral, a big bouquet of flowers arrived from Zappos because it was a real company with real people who truly cared. Well, those days are more and more behind us because as companies have gotten bigger, they've tried to squeeze profit out of every corner they can. Because once you have an 800 number and your competitor has an 800 number, well, you're going to have to find profit somewhere. And so we get the recording that our call is really important. Well, no. If our call was really important, you would answer the phone. So we get recordings about unusually heavy call volume. At this time, we are experiencing heavy call volume. Which, of course, is nonsense. What we're actually hearing when we get one of those recordings is the database deciding to put someone else in front of you in line. The database knows that there's a higher value customer. It recognizes their number, so they get on the phone before you do. What we're hearing is an organization that's run by someone who's trying to save pennies, not trying to make an impact. We've gotten past, let's invest in this leap to, let's put this on a glide path that costs us as little as possible. We've also been trained, trained to understand that the best customer service rep might be no customer service rep. That using a web interface or a mobile interface to tell the company what we actually want might be faster, more reliable, and more efficient than doing it through a human being. At least that's what the companies have trained us to do. Surely there are exceptions. There are companies where we eagerly call them to talk to them. But in general, as we move to the web, customer service is disappearing and it's becoming self service. The biggest side effect, though, the reason I made this episode, is the corruption. The telephone is an amazing device. It's intimate, it's immediate, it's real. There's a person at the other end of the phone. But since 1980, two things have changed. First, outbound phone spam. Those people calling you all hours of the day and night to trick you, to raise money, to sell you worthless coins, to hassle you. We can tell when it's a phone bank. We can tell from the dead air. We can tell that there's a human being on the other end who's not acting like a human being. They're a cog in the system a piece of human spam thrown right in our face stripping away the magic of what the telephone used to offer which is connection which is a real person and yes in the other direction as well that the people who work at these big companies with their inbound call centers they're being pushed to be faceless cogs they're not allowed to care they're being controlled by computer systems That one question survey you're asked to answer at the end of a call, that's a cudgel to make sure that the operator did, quote, a good job. And every interaction is timed. They're not people in that role. They're just systems. And I'm afraid that what we've done is trained generations of people to expect that it's okay when you're talking to a person for that person to not act like a person. The last step that I want to talk about is the move toward artificial intelligence and how that is already changing the game. It's not just those annoying, annoying phone trees that force you to type in one more piece of information. Okay, go ahead in your own words. Those are really poorly thought out. I can't imagine that they pay for themselves compared to the hassle they put the customer through. In fact, My theory is they're just trying to teach you not to call them. No, I'm talking about actual artificial intelligence where the computer ought to be able to predict your needs and satisfy them faster and more efficiently than a person can. If this begins to happen, and I see it happening already, my prediction is it's going to move from I need to call the company to the company ought to call me. So let me give you an example. If you're on a plane and there's 45 people on the plane and the plane gets canceled, here's what happens now. There's a scrum, a giant fight at the desk. Everyone is freaked out. Everyone is stressed. Everyone's trying to get the next thing to happen. But wait a minute. The airline knows who's on the plane. And the airline knows the phone number of the people who are on the plane. So why not three seconds after the pilot or the flight attendant tells us that the flight is canceled, have everybody's phone ring at exactly the same time. 45 artificially intelligent robots calling 45 stressed out people at the same time. And it can say to those people, no need to rush to the desk, I'm right here for you. I know where you are. I know where you're going. I know all the other airlines that fly. I know who's on those Airlines, and I know when their planes are scheduled to take off. Would it be okay with you if I reschedule you from here to there? Yes or no? Now, what we've done is yes, taken the human on the other end of the phone out of the equation, but also gotten back into what the point of the whole thing was from the first place. In a second, we'll be back with answers to your questions from last time, but first, Here's a message from our featured nonprofit.
1: The jobs of today and the future require digital, technical, and social-emotional fluency. Students are ill-prepared in these skills today because schools aren't equipped to keep up with the rapid innovations occurring in our economy. At Honor Code, we provide remote and in-person teacher trainings to schools and after-school organizations to bring employer aligned computer science and social-emotional learning skills into the general K-12 classroom. Currently in Georgia, a little less than 5% of K-12 schools offer some form of computer science education. This lack of equity is not only seen in Georgia, but across many states in our country. And with an expected 2020 skilled labor gap to fill of more than 1.4 million software development and IT jobs, we have to do something about it. For more information on how to bring Honor Code training to a school or after school organization in your area, visit our website at www.honorcodeatl.org. Honor Code, helping our schools build the capacity for tomorrow's world. Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Reading, Seth. Yes. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta
0: Perry. My question is. And that completes my question. Thanks so much for your questions from last time. If you've got a question you'd like me to take on, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button.
1: Hi, Seth. This is Anupam calling in from Berlin. My question to you is, in a world where most transactions, including the use of currency, are turning anonymous, where I can buy and sell from stores online without any personal interaction, and where customers are turning into data points in huge data warehouses, what is the driving force for empathy and how does one build an empathetic business? Thank you.
0: Thanks, Anupam. Let's talk about two kinds of empathy. First, there's the empathy for groups of people who aren't like you. Consider Amazon, the giant, data warehouse, the giant commodity seller, the giant online marketer. The people who buy from Amazon aren't necessarily like Jeff Bezos. After all, he's the richest person in the world. They want something he doesn't want. They need something he doesn't need. They tell themselves a story that he doesn't tell himself. Not just him, but so many of the people who work there. So you can't possibly build a system, and offer a story for large numbers of people if you insist that those people want what you want, know what you know, and believe what you believe. But in the micro, it's also important to understand that this race to digitize everything, the race to be anonymous, to sell anonymous stuff to anonymous people through anonymous systems, to create nothing but digital handshakes, Yes, it makes things more convenient, but as Tim Wu has pointed out, convenience isn't necessarily worth trading for. That over the last 30 years, people have traded freedoms and rights and opportunity in exchange for a little convenience. But if you're in the market as a creator, a provider, a freelancer, if you're a small business, if you're trying to make a difference, the convenience of digital anonymity isn't your friend. That instead of racing to make it so that you don't have to look people in the eye, the opportunity is to work hard so that you do. The opportunity is to be able to treat different people differently, to see people for who they are, because that's one of the largest unmet human needs, to be seen, And so if we, as small-time creators, not the richest person in the world, not the head of giant public companies, but as creators, as agents of change, if we can build systems and opportunities where we are required to have empathy for others, that is our secret advantage.
1: Hi, Seth, this is Amy from the UK. So, I
0: have a question relating to your podcast, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. Practically speaking, how do you stop yourself in your tracks in the moment to be able to cultivate enough space to have that level of um, awareness to then have empathy? But what
1: practical suggestions do you have to um, help us slow down and foster more empathy. Thank you, bye.
0: Thank you, Ami. I have two parts to my answer to this question. The first one comes from a story from the great teacher Pema Chadran. She was at a meditation retreat, and a guy three cushions away from her kept making a clicking sound, an annoying clicking noise the whole morning, click, click, click. And she was furious at him for ruining What would otherwise be a great day of sitting in meditation? Well, during the break, she walked over to talk to him about it when she discovered it was a radiator that was making the clicking sound, that the radiator had been making the noise. And as soon as she realized that it was an inanimate object, all of the anger went away. Because, after all, how can you be angry at a radiator? So the first lesson for me about empathy comes down to this. We rarely get angrily frustrated simply because it's raining or because a squirrel gnawed at our garbage or because a radiator is making noise. When entities that don't have a conscious narrative do things that annoy us, we realize that the annoyance is on us because after all, The squirrel didn't set out to be annoying. Okay, but what does that have to do with people? Well, Sonder, the idea that everyone has a complicated inner life, a complicated inner life at least as complicated as yours, helps us understand that we can't possibly know what the real intent of the person who's annoying us was, and that it might be easier to just... Treat them like a rainstorm. Treat them like a squirrel. Treat them like a radiator. They're here. This is happening. And I can't do anything about the story in their head. All I can do is dance with it. All I can do is show up with stories and symbols and opportunities that will help them change their behavior in a way that lets me go about reaching my goals. And then the second half of it is this. It's hard. It's really hard. And there's a great term for it. And that term is emotional labor. So if you're fortunate enough to have a job where you don't do physical labor, where you don't head home at the end of every day with strained ligaments, with a lung full of stuff, exhausted, you probably have a job where people are asking you to do emotional labor instead. The hard work of showing up when you might not feel like it. The hard work of seeing other people as having an internal narrative that's different than yours. So when this occurs, it's possible to tell yourself the story of, oh good, here's a chance to earn my pay. Oh good, here's a chance for me to do this work that truly matters. Because as we just covered a minute ago, If all your work is, is moving bits and digits from one pile to another, a computer is going to do that instead of you. Your work is, in fact, the difficult work of empathy, of finding a thread that helps you understand somebody else's narrative so that you can work with them and dance with them and inspire them to take the actions that you want them to take. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Hello, Akimbo listeners. It's Seth here to tell you about a new program that we've been working on. It's called the Bootstrappers Workshop. Just in time for Labor Day. We're running it one time this year, and it's all about freedom. The freedom of running your own gig. A different way. Something not quite a freelancer, not quite an entrepreneur, but somebody who creates value and gets paid for it. Check out the Bootstrappers Workshop .com for all the information. Hope to see you there. Thanks for listening.